Sairam dear listeners and welcome back to our series Trist with Divinity the program where seekers from around the world share their sai experiences today we have miss dana gillespie in conversation with radio sai's karuna munchi so safe and sound Been so many times when you save me from the lion's jaw save me from my sins open up the One example was in Samarkand. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd gone there with, with the team of people, and that's in Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan. Okay. And that's this was where I think it was Steen Pickerel pulled out a photograph and showed it to a little old Muslim woman, and she said, "He's God. We've been waiting for him." And tears poured down her cheek. And then a, a, an eleven-year-old boy came up and he said, "But I was playing football with him in the street yesterday." This musician of international repute is also an ambassador of Sai message around the world. In this conversation, she explains how her travels to remote places reveal how little she knows of her Sai. Sairam, on Thursday, December the 9th, 2010, the Sai Kulwant Hall in Prashanti Nilayam witnessed a musical concert by the British singer, actress and songwriter, Dana Gillespie. Only in Prashanti Nilayam do we enjoy Tyagaraja Kirtans rendered in the classical Carnatic style one day and have the blues diva Dana Gillespie belt out her soulful numbers to the multicultural, multi-faith audience the very next day. Dana Gillespie has been performing in the divine presence of Bhagwan Baba since the past 15 years. First performance here was at the time of Baba's 70th birthday. At this moment, she has 45 years of music background with over 60 albums to her credit. Her career has combined her music with radio, theater, film and sports. Although her life has become synonymous with her music, In the 1970s she became well known for her appearances in London's West End theaters. She played the original Mary Magdalene in the first London production of Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice's Jesus Christ Superstar 
and in The Who's Tommy playing the Acid Queen and The Rock Othello, Catch My Soul. She also appeared with Dudley Moore in the film version of The Hounds of the Baskervilles and starred in Ken Russell's Mailer, among other movies. This versatile artist, who seems to have been there and done it all things creative, comes from a family of do-gooders and social activists. Her father was a doctor and her family was attached to the Church of England. Her ancestors were Quakers and included Elizabeth Fry of the prison reform fame. Yet, this trailblazer foresaw her personal journey as a musician early in life, a journey that has seen her share the stage with the likes of Bob Dylan and Mick Jagger, among others, and entertain audiences all over the world. This blues legend has two shows currently in her blues repertoire, an audience with Dana Gillespie and Dana Gillespie and the London Blues Band. Today at Radio Sai Global Harmony, we are pleased to welcome Dana Gillespie to our studio. Sairam Dana and welcome to Radio Sai. Sairam Karuna and a pleasure to be here. Likewise. Let's start off as a young girl. You know, you came from a good family. Yes. Your father was a radiologist, I yes. understand. And at 11, you told your parents that you wanted to change your name and you chose your name, yes. Dana. Where was that coming from? Well, actually, I, I, because my real name, which I don't really divulge, only it, it appears occasionally in things like Wikipedia, much to my annoyance, it's an old family name that comes from the Elizabeth Fry, the Quaker line of the family. So all of the women in these, this line, they have this name. And I said to my parents, I think I'm, I'm going to be famous when I'm older, so I'm going to give myself the name of Dana right now. And, um, and so you, from henceforth on, can you please call me this? And it flows very nicely off the tongue. My sister's elder daughter, though, has the name that I'm not going to tell you what it is. So that's being kept under wraps. So I know that lots of relations... I've been in a room once with, with women from 90 down to nine months, and they all had my first name, but not Dana. But at 11, when you told your mother that you were going to be famous and therefore needed to change your name, how did you know that? I don't know, she must have... I don't know. I, I've always functioned on the instinct side. I, musicians have to, and I didn't know what I was doing. I probably still don't, but I know I wrote my first song, a little composition called The Cuckoo Clock, which I gave to my mother, and um, she sadly no more, but the piece of paper's probably in a rubbish bin somewhere. And I just knew that music was the thing for me. I mean, I was a very normal child. I was interested in chocolate and animals and music, and that was about it. And uh, so I just followed my dreams. And as I, the first blues songs I heard was when I was 11. I didn't understand a lot of the lyrics, but I used to sing along to them. And I felt this music very intensely. And you know, blues music is something that is very simple music. And I think if one can talk about reincarnation, I must have lived in that era. The moment, moment I heard Miss Bessie Smith sing, and she was the heroine, the icon of the old blues women in the 30s and 40s, I felt like I'd come home. And she was a big, large woman who would sing, you know, things that I didn't really understand at that age, but this was music that was familiar. And... Uh, and in the 60s, blues was very important. You know, a lot of the 
bands that we might know now, like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, they started out as blues bands because it's basically three chords and 12 bars and theoretically any fool should be able to play it, but they can't. If In fact, if you're a good musician, a jazz musician, you know too many notes. It's the simplicity of it. And as I had told you earlier, it's music that is born out of pain. So anything that is done without having to read notes, like classical music where you've got to read, it has to come from the heart. So all the blues musicians I work with, they work from the heart. They do not work from the head. And that's how I like to be. So it's working on instinct. It's the sort of instinct that if you're sitting in a budgeon group and it's your turn to sing, I always go, oh, Swami, please help me get the right note and hope that he gives me it. Because if you start too low or too high, the budgeon is ruined because you then land up in a squeak or a, you can't find the deep note. So it, you have to function on instinct. And if we're talking about budgeons, which I adore, I do think it's really important that people do bhajans because Swami keeps talking about it more and more in the last few years, the importance of it. So, you know, bhajans plays, plays a large part of my life. And coming to bhajans, this is, you've had quite a journey as a musician. You, you released your first album at the age of 15 and it yes. was folk music. Yes. And seeing that you've been through many different genres of music and done the blues now, lately blues and bhajans, and performed in front of Baba, this journey, it could not have been possible without a personal journey because as an artist, you're intensely involved in your work. You write most of the songs you sing yeah, yourself. Yeah, that's right. And uh, uh, tell us about this journey, this whole evolution of uh, Dana Gillespie. Well, I suppose musically I started as a folk singer because I couldn't afford a band. And I had a sort of in, a very nicely in tune but rather pure voice because at 15 your voice is definitely not developed. And I wasn't even allowed to be in the school choir because I was far too much of a school of a giggler. I mean, I was disruptive because everything was funny to me. So I knew I had a, an okay voice, but I, and I, I knew that this is what I wanted to do. I wasn't sure whether it would be theatre or film or anything. I just knew I was meant to perform, and so I took any job that came my way. And so I did really some awful musicals. Um, there's some pretty terrible old films, but that was the genre that was around in the 60s. There was always some native girl with lots of hair and things that would be out being active. And because I'd also been, as, as you said earlier, a sportswoman, I was a sports girl, actually. You I was the British yeah, I was British, champion. Yeah, for four years, and I was in the snow ski team as well, until an avalanche swept me down and damaged my leg, hence I often walk with a, a, a limp and this was when I was 15 and so sport kind of got more of the back seat and also I realized very early on that you don't make money out of sport and I have to survive you know I had to live I lived at home till I was 30 which is very late for anyone but I had a great relationship In with my West. parents it is yes well yes it's extremely odd um but I had such a good relationship with my parents and, and so I, I just lived in the basement flat and they were in, it was quite a big house in the floors above me. And I had a piano and a drum kit and a bass guitar and a, and a little kind of a sound recording thing. It had two tracks to record, which is quite revolutionary then. And musicians used to drop by. And so a lot of them were, are famous now, but then they were just session musicians. They, they weren't famous to me. They were Any just... Names? Well, David Bowie used to walk me home from school and carry my ballet shoes when I was 14. Um, Jimmy Page, who's still an old friend who's founded Led Zeppelin, he played, he produced a track on, on my first album, as you said, when I was 15. And 
So these guys were just normal guys. They then stuck to their music and then they became more famous. I must say, I don't hang out, as you could say, with musicians. I don't pick up the telephone and go, hi, it's Dana, are you in town? Let's do something. I, because musicians usually have got their home lives and they don't socialise much. You do when you're younger, but you know, at my age, I don't, my idea of heaven is to sit at home and not go out because I go out for my living. Okay. And then I just saw, sorry to interrupt you here. Yeah. I'm just wondering, did you ever go back to that school where you weren't allowed on the choir as a singer? Do you know, I never, I, I left school at 15, strangely, which, and they brought out a, a law very soon afterwards that you have to, by law, stay at school till 16. I just got under the radar, which I was extremely <laughs> happy for. And I never stayed in contact with them, with them until quite recently some old girls contacted me and we all met up. We all were friends then and it doesn't change. The years don't change things and it's, and it's marvellous. But I actually left that school and went to a theatre school because I... I'd, I was working in the evenings raising money to, for a drum kit and drum lessons in a record store. And in the mornings, between 5 and 6.30 every morning, I was delivering newspapers so I could get enough money to buy this drum kit. So I formed a band when I was at the theatre school when I was 14. I was the drummer, of course. And one of our first big gigs, um, the uh, singer was ill, didn't even bother to turn up. So I knew the songs, we got another drummer in and I became the singer. Mm -hmm. And the moment I... My, yeah, well, except is anything by chance? chance. Nothing is by chance. So I knew... I knew I couldn't really be a drummer because I happened to... My drum teacher was an extraordinary man and he used to be very friendly with a famous drummer who's now dead called Buddy Rich. Mm -hmm. And he would take me to see this, this world-class drummer. And when I saw how this man played, I realised I could never play like that. And I've always worked on the premise that if you can't do something really well or be the best, then do something else. You know, if I had been a great cook, I'd have landed up being hopefully the world's best cook, but it just happened to be that music was the thing that grabbed me. I was just doing, you know, as I said, terrible musicals, weird films, and, and nothing really that my mother would have ever been proud of. And this is the yardstick in my life. Would my mother like something? Because I had an amazing mother. She used to come here to see Sai Baba as well, and even at the age of 84 she came here, so I was one of those lucky ones that had great training from great parents. Anyway, the moment I landed the role of Jesus Christ Superstar, she was able to go, huh, my daughter's Daughter. doing something valid and great. And uh, that kind of sort of changed my life in a way. So Mary Magdalene, huh? Yeah, and what's so strange about that is, I don't normally tell this story, but I knew I was meant to be married two years before it happened. I, I can't sit here and say I'm psychic all the time, but I knew I was meant to be married. And I tried to audition for one thing. Uh, they were trying to put a record version of it. They couldn't take me for some reason. Then I went to America to try and audition there. No, they wouldn't take me because I hadn't got the union card. And I was actually taken as the chorus in, in Jesus Christ Superstar. Hmm. And while we were rehearsing, I kept thinking, I know I'm meant to be married. And the week before the show opened, they asked me if I'd sing, try out for the understudy. And in the understudy, you used to get two pounds extra in those days, which is, what, 140 rupees, not very much. But I thought, well, okay, maybe she'll be ill one day and perhaps my dream will come true. And I went, they called me back to come in the next day at nine in the morning to sing the main song, which is, I don't know how to love him. And I, something happened to me. I've got to say, something took over my body. I stepped out in front of the biggest theatre in London, 
took the microphone. I'd never sung this song before. I had to learn it the night before because Mary sings alone on the stage. The chorus do all the dancing and leaping about. And as I started to sing, I can honestly say I had almost like a godlike experience. Something sang through me. I was actually, I've got to say, I was amazing. I'm not saying this big-headed, something happened. And I came off stage with tears in my eyes, with my knees shaking, because I'd never heard my voice alone with a piano in a huge theatre. And I waited for half an hour in a little room at the side, and, the, and there was another girl who'd also auditioned for the understudy, and she sang all right as well. And we're sitting in the side room, and the director comes in and he says to the other girl, you've got the part of the understudy. And I remember thinking, you're off your rocker. I meant to be Mary. And then he turned to me and he said, and we're going to make you Mary. We're going to have to buy out the other girl who was bought out. And I took over the role. And it was an amazing experience. It was a year of, you know, watching the crucifixion every night, actually, eight times a week. And, but it's not, that wasn't satisfying for me because you're doing something that somebody else has written. Mm -hmm. And I knew this... I meant to sing what I'm feeling. It was great. It was fantastic. I had a great job, a regular wage. It was the hit show of London. Your mother was proud of you. My mother was proud of me. I was the talk of the town. I was having a whale of a time. It was the 70s. But I knew it wasn't my goal to be in musicals because you can't travel either. You have to sign a contract to be in the West End of London and it's usually for a year. Yeah. And that's like putting shackles on me. I mean, I have to fly free. So when it was over, I went to America and um, started touring there, and I had my band, so I just kept recording from there. And you've had a hand in radio as well, from Austria, Vienna. Yes, now that was one of the joys of my life, you know, because I know you're a radio person, and I adore radio. And actually, I know that I'm a good radio presenter, because I love the music. And I, it was called Globetrotting with, with Gillespie, and it ran for 11 years, and I specialised in Indian, African, Arabic and blues music. Nobody else was doing it then across Europe, every Saturday night, so that every taxi driver in Vienna knew, knew my voice, because they're all foreigners. And so I'd play something from the Ivory Coast yeah. one day, or a budgeon. I used to sneak the odd budgeon in, which <laughs> made me rather happy. And, but then the radio station folded, so that came to an end. But I actually thank God for that experience because if you can understand other countries' music, then you can understand the people better. And when you understand the people better, there's no need to have wars and fight them. And I'm a great believer in pacifism. It's so important, this understanding that we are all one. And which, music is such an inlet, it gives you such a view into another soul. It does indeed, and it's and the culture. great communicator, because I know that 35 years ago, I was sitting on a camel in Rajasthan, in Jaisalmer, actually doing what tourists did then, it, only it was quite early days for them to go to places like Jaisalmer. There was only one hotel there, and I went off one of these camel safaris with the camel man on the same camel and another friend on another camel, and we had not one word of common language so he started sort of humming, and I had just learned a Pankash Uda song. So I sang this to him, and he immediately perked up because he recognised the melody. So he sang a song, I sang a song. We spent the next eight hours, eight hours, singing songs. So we were friends when we finally got off the camel. I mean, it was very beautiful, and I'll never forget that, but it taught me about the power of music and the communication. Um, Diana, you've lived a full life and during uh, you've been a famous uh, artist, you've 
flown first class, driven in limousines, been welcomed in places. <coughs> it's quite a full life exciting. Now, where does the chapter on Sai Baba fit into the life of Dana Gillespie? Before you get on to that, I must tell you, I've, sl I've slept and travelled cattle class. I've been at the back, <laughs> I've slept on floors, I've played in clubs. I don't mind where I, where I go. For me, it's all the same. As I'm a little older, obviously one needs a bit of comfort because the body's falling to pieces and it has not always been easy. You know, I've really had tough times and they've made me strong. So when I first read a book on Sai Baba, which was Man of Miracles, it was about 30 years ago, I did something I never do. I instantly went to get a ticket. Actually, my father bought it for me. He said, I have a feeling you're meant to do this. So three weeks later, I leap on a plane. And because these three weeks getting the visa and I had the, I'd only read Man of Miracles, I had this feeling that Sai Baba was sort of, you know, hauling me in like a fisherman, you know. And I had this feeling he was going to say when I got here, hello, I'm, you know, I've been waiting for you. You're the chosen one. Mm -hmm. But of course, not a bit of it. He ignored me for 12 years. I slept in the sheds, um, got eaten alive by mosquitoes, had extraordinary experiences, thing, coincidences, things that a non-believer will go, well, that's just a coincidence. But, you know, when you have Baba in your heart and you have faith, um, then you realise that nothing is a coincidence. So, right. you know, I had had quite a few unusual experiences and they were enough to keep me coming back sometimes twice a year to sit and be crushed at the back. My leg was bad, so I, the first time I came here, I actually walked into the place and I left in a wheelchair <laughs> instead of being the other way around because I was determined to sit cross-legged. And, and with your bad knee, it must have been very painful. It was agony. And I often have walked with a stick, a walking stick, when I've been here. And, um, and, but I'm so fed up when everybody goes, oh, what have you done? I haven't done anything. It's been like this for years. I don't mind. It's just the body. I'm not bothered about it at all. Pain is a nuisance because it drains your energy and it can distract you from getting on with loftier, godlier thoughts. But I have to thank this leg pain because every step I take, which is painful, I have to say Sairam. Every step going up stairs, I have to hold the railing or I find somebody who might be on the step below me and I'll put my hand on his shoulder. And I say Sairam, thank you. So for that, I'm extremely grateful. And I know that Sai Barbara has said for every trouble we have, we should thank him, we should thank God our Lord, because that makes us turn to him more. If I'd have had a bed of roses life, you know, and, you know, happy husband and children and blah, blah, which doesn't go actually with the music business, I wouldn't have wanted to find anything higher. I'd have been content with the samsaric view of life. And that has never been my goal. I've wanted to fly free. So this 12 years of anonymity, you know, this Westerner with red hair sitting at the back of the Kulwant Hall, no particular physical attention from Baba. What kept you coming back? That's a long period well, of time. Well, he did little things, small things. At one time, I left Bangalore and I had lost my um, passport. I, I, on the way, I knew that my, the, my passport wasn't in my bag. And I knew that I hadn't left it in Bangalore because I always do what we call in England an idiot check. I never lose anything, ever, because I travel so much. So I thought, well, I've read this story about Swami always found somebody in Paris, I mm -hmm. think, they found his traveller's checks or passport. I thought, well, I've got a choice. Either I go back and they'll all think I'm stupid because I know I haven't left it there. Or I go on and he will find it for me mm -hmm. and something will happen. So I get to 
put a party. I try and register, but of course I get barked at by the men at the accommodation office. How you dare you? No ID. I've, got, I've got no ID. Go to the police station. Ticket was also in my passport. Oh dear. You can lose money and somehow you can get that back, but these two things are vital. So these were missing and I was desperate thinking, what am I going to do? And then a group of Austrians from Vienna said, oh, come in with us, we'll smuggle you into the shed. Nobody's going to notice. So I thought, right, okay. And because I was really frazzled and shaking over this experience, I plonked down. I didn't have a mosquito net. I couldn't find a bedroll. I mean, I was completely unprepared for this, this occurrence. And, that, and I couldn't find a torch. And, and so... In the days when you could do Omkar and go round the Mandir, I thought, well, I'm going to have to get up, I'm going to have to ask Swami for help. I leapt out, ran outside and sat behind the Mandir. It was all dark, sitting there, and there was nobody around. And then I managed to see it, you know, under a bit of a light. My God, it's three o'clock in the morning. I've come out far too early. So I sink down on my knees uh, and I go, Swami, you have to help me. And I had my hand sitting there. And suddenly, a jasmine flower plopped out of nowhere. There was no wind, there was no jasmine flowers around. It just landed there. And I heard this noise, like, really like a plop, as it appeared in existence and landed there. And I thought, my goodness, I know he's going to help me. I had the faith, you mm -hmm. see, because I've always known everyone else is going to let me down in life and let us all down, let's face it. Only God cannot. He has to be your best friend. Very true. So I thought, well, I don't know how he's going to do it, but I know he's going to do it. And the next, at the next darshan, I'm ignored, of course. So I thought, well, then I'm a bit disheartened. And in those days when you could walk up at the back, I always used to walk up there alone. They'd always said, don't go the snakes and scorpions. But I used to think, well, if I sing budgeons, nothing's going to bite me. I'm up there and there's cool breezes and I'm watching the eagles flying around. And when I'm up there, I suddenly hear this, vo like a voice saying go straight down now to the main street, go now, now. So I rush down and as I'm going past the accommodation office, a man is coming out with my ticket and passport in his hand and he'd found it and he tried to return it but because I wasn't registered, they didn't know who to give it to. So we met and in those days that street was always very crowded. Those are little kind of tiny little and things. Who, um, did you find out where the man found your passport and ticket? No, because I looked down to check it was me and when I looked up he'd gone. Hmm. It was one of those great stories. And I've got another little one like that. You know, I, when I first came here, and you know, the first thing that hit me about seeing Sai Baba was I must never eat an animal again. You know, meat is off the menu for it me. It was an instinctive? Yeah, I, he was quite far away. He was always a bit of an orange dot in yeah. the distance, although there were less people. But it just hit me. And I wasn't looking to be a vegetarian, although I've never been that keen on meat, but it just hit me. So I came back full of beans from my first trip, saying to everyone, I'm going to be, this is Mother Teresa, step aside, the spiritual life of me, I'm going to be fantastic, I'm helping little old ladies across the road whether they want it or not. <laughs> and I enrolled as a helper at the main cancer hospital, pushing trolleys, and, you know, I was all trying to do good. And then my father said, you know, I think you should go back again and, and take, he, he'd married again, take his wife, who was sort of my stepmother. We go back... And in these three days I'm trying to show a put a party, somehow all the things that I had wanted to be wonderful sort of fell by the wayside. You know, I, my 
promises were broken left, right and centre and I felt so miserable that my word was not my bond, to quote Shakespeare, that I sat one day in the, in the um, Budgeon Hall, in Whitefield actually, in floods of tears. I was about 20 rows back and Swami's up on the, on the, be- on the chair and everyone's happy and, and, and he's beating time with his right hand. The whole time he's happy and I've got my glasses on so I can see him really clearly and I want to sink down low behind the woman in front of me. And my clothes were soaked with tears. I have never cried like that. It was like a tap had been turned on. And I now know when they, when they break a coconut, you know, that it's, you've got to break the person so that the milk comes out from within. This was my breaking point. I was a broken person sitting in an outfit. It wasn't a sari. Thank God it was black, actually, a black skirt. Totally dripping wet. And every now and then, Swami would look at me and he'd go like this, as if to say, calm down. And I kept thinking, it must be for the person behind me or in front. And then he's still beating time like that. And and then he'd come back and do this calm down. After this went on for 15 minutes, and by this time I was wringing wet with my clothes. I really couldn't stop the tears. It was just pouring. no No control. I was doing it silently, of course, and it wasn't going to disturb anyone else. That must have looked pretty awful, <laughs> uh, but nobody could see. And then I said to him, I, then I made the connection, you have to speak to God within. So I said to him, look, if, if you are everything I've read about, and if you can exactly know exactly what I'm feeling at this moment, I demand a sign. And all I could see was that he'd never moved his left hand. He'd just been beating time with his right hand. So I said, right, just beat once for me. And he looked me straight in the eyes, went once with his left hand, and then carried on and you know with his right hand and never moved his left hand again. So this was very good for me because it made me realise his omniscience, omnipotence and whatever. Omnipresence. Thank you, that's the word. (laughs) So I, you know, I've had to learn stage by stage and if he'd have welcomed me that first trip going, yes, here you are, you're the chosen one, I hate to think what my ego would have grown (laughs) to because I come from a profession where they judge you on your looks, which I've always thought was pathetic. I don't judge anyone on how they look. I look at their heart. But I'm in a profession where you judged on how you look and especially in the 60s and 70s if you're going to be on a silver screen in a film you've got to look supposedly good I did look good but I was always insulted you know and they'd either say oh you've got to lose a bit of weight for this film once I didn't eat for three weeks because I had to lose some weight for a film how pathetic is that you know what's wrong with being overweight bring it on I say (laughs) I say amen to that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this 12 years of learning and evolving yeah. and taking baby steps to understand yourself and yeah. Baba, building this relationship, suddenly you're catapulted into limelight. You are performing at the 70th birthday in the Divine Presence. From this anonymity to this celebrity status, how did the change occur? Well, I thought it was going to occur because I'd made my first Budgeon CD. I know that I've told this story, but I'll re- retell it very quickly. Please. I did, I, I could see this, there was this marvellous music, and I thought the Westerners must get to learn it better. Because in those days, there was only those Budgeon Valley cassettes yes. with the sort of yellow bit. And if you bought them in India, they'd broken by the time you played <laughs> it once. It was before the days of CDs. And I thought, well, look, if I can make this music a bit more acceptable to the Western ear, I might be doing some good and make it nice trancey drums and unusual. So I did this thing and put it on a cassette. And I um, 
and it was my last day, and, I, and Swami had never spoken to me, and I never spoke to anyone here. Nobody knew I was a singer. I'm not really the sociable type. I was just happy to be in his presence, albeit at the back. So I managed to smuggle this cassette in, which I'd hidden under my shirt, and um, I, as I said, I told nobody, and he came straight over to me. <laughs> it was my last day, and I'd wanted to present it, but he said, ah, the singer, give me the cassette. And so I had to produce this hot and sweaty thing and hand it to him, and he took it into the mandir. So I thought he'd finally accepted this little offering. So I did go ahead and, and press the first CD, and which I made three under the name of Third Man, because I thought I didn't want to confuse the blues fans who might have gone, oh, let's a new blues CD from Dana Gillespie, and put it on, oh, what's this? So I had to change my name. But then, of course, they started releasing it here with a sticker saying, featuring Dana Gillespie, so now I don't bother with Third Man. So when I get a call in London saying, would you be interested to come and sing for Swami's 70th birthday from mm. somebody connected with, with um, Brindavan in, in, White, in Whitefield, I said, well, yes, and I was convinced they wanted budgeons. You know, I was, I was imagining me you know, with my trancy, groovy rhythms. This is <laughs> bound to be the thing. And I said, no, no, Swami wants you to do the Western music. So I had to search around for musicians that could actually help me out because half of my band said, we're not going to go to a place where you can't eat meat, smoke a cigarette or have a drink. So that was quite difficult. But I managed to get an odd assortment of guys together. And that was my first experience. And it was an amazing one. You know, I arrived, there was somebody meeting me at the airport. I immediately had a big thing plonked there saying artist. So the crowds parted. I went everywhere. I was being fed. You know, I couldn't believe my luck. And You'd had a huge changeover in your life in Puttaparthi now. Yes, but actually it didn't, it, well, it wasn't always, it wasn't a, a bed of roses. I learned some interesting things. I, I got a terrible flu-like thing two days before. I had no voice at all on the day of the concert. But because I couldn't see my band, because they were in the men's section, I couldn't tell them and I didn't want to worry them because they, would, they had no idea what they were doing. They knew they were coming for some sort of weird Indian experience, but this was beyond <laughs> their realms of imagination. And also, you know, everything was chaotic. And I learned a very good lesson. The act, if you can call it, that was about to go on before me was axed at the very last second. Oh, so all these little children with mascara trailing down their faces were really unhappy. Anyway, I, um, I said to Swami, I'd learned to talk inside by this time. And he was sitting under the Shantivedika. That was when that huge sun was there. And I had said to him, listen, I've got no voice. You've got me all this way. You are, you've got to help me. If you're going to help me, would you please look at me now? And he turns his head and looks at me. So then... Two minutes later, somebody came up to me and said, I think you should have these five cloves. And then somebody else came up to me and said, um, here's some vibhuti for you. And I must say, when I stepped out on stage to sing, I probably had about 60% of voice, but that's enough for blues. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. I thought I was doing a blues gig. And everyone had said, don't worry, the day after the concert, you know, all the artists get given, you know, an interview, which, of course, when you don't know anything, that seems to be your goal. You know, I must get an interview. It took a while. The interview was the better way to be. 
So the next day, we're all lined up, the women, the artists, I don't know what, the men were all lined up, and Swami comes out and he picks every single person except for me. I'm the only one that sat on my own for once in full view of everyone wanting to die. And even... It must have been so hard, eh? Well, it was. Even as I tell you this now, I can almost taste the blood in my mouth where I chewed my gums so as not to cry because I basically just wanted to howl and fall to pieces but I was in full view and I'm British so you have to have the stiff upper lip. So I chewed my gums and I had to hold my head up high and walk out of that place knowing I was the only one who'd been rejected. Awful, awful feeling. Actually. What was going through your head? Were you self-introspecting or wondering well, what went wrong? Well, I, well, I thought everyone hated me anyway for singing blues. Don't forget that at the moment that he's swinging on the jeweler, there's blues going on. And you know, I know 99.9% of the Indians are expecting marvelous holy music with sitar or something, and they've got <laughs> this beat. So I thought they're going to hate me. And in fact, uh, a day or two later. A, a German woman said to me, didn't know it was me, she said, oh, that dreadful Western music when he's on the jeweler. And I said, well, actually, it was me. And she went the colour of a tomato. But, you know, I understand people's reaction. They'd never heard blues. And, of course, most people don't know how spiritual blues actually is. And it is a thing that is very heartfelt. So, you know, he didn't talk to me, but I felt... Yes, the nice thing is he answered a prayer. And this is the other thing. If you do pray to him... He does answer your prayers. And we forget this. We forget. Well, I didn't know to do it when I was earlier, but a few years earlier, about five years earlier, at the Sci Center that I got went to, still go to, a man got up and was talking about the significance of, of Krishna um, playing the flute, the nine-hold flute, because it has to be like our body, and if the holes are empty, then obviously the Lord plays the best melody. And then he said, and the reason you have the Lord on a jeweler is because he should be swinging in your heart. And I remember thinking, I like that symbolic thing of, of the Lord swinging in your heart. And I made a prayer, dear Lord, will you swing while I sing? Oh, and it and came so, to happen. And five years later, he's on the jeweler. Mm, and you're singing to him. Yes, mm. although I was probably still hated by 99.9% .9 of the Indians. <laughs> but they've slowly kind of got used to me. I mean, I performed in the Purna Chandra Hall with backing tracks. That's also a rather unusual thing. I've never seen anyone with backing tracks. But before. if I may backtrack, how did you make sense of that moment where Swami didn't pick you as an artist? How did you... Uh, convince yourself and console yourself and come back. I'm sure you felt terribly rejected and sad at that I moment. I felt small, lonely and unloved. Um, it's quite difficult for me to feel small, <laughs> but I certainly <laughs> felt it then. Went home to my room and howled into my pillow. and But then I remembered about this prayer. So I knew that he'd answered it, but of course I was still yearning to see, to have an interview. But I went home and it was still a great experience. I came back a few months later and he did actually give me an interview. He didn't say very much to me, but I think he just knew I was yearning to see what the inside of the room was like. Right. You know, anything. I didn't know what I wanted. <laughs> I've never known what to ask him because I don't know what I want. He knows. And so I think it's much better to not ask him anything. Although, when I sang the other day... I did say on the stage that he did ask me once, you know... Any questions? What, you know, any questions. And as usual, I can't think of anything, you know, terribly intelligent. So I just said to him, you know, what is the point of it all? What's this thing called life? What's it all about, basically? And he just said, play the game, be happy. 
and very it, significant words. It's it sounds totally. Simple. It is sounds, but so many people forget it. And I travel all over the world, as you know, doing singing at Sai centres in places that most people don't know where they are. And I certainly didn't <laughs> till I've been there. And I always tell this to people because when you've got terrible times and things are hard, and all of us have tough lives. I mean, nobody escapes without pain and you know, unhappiness or death or illness, nobody. Mm-hmm. We have to remember that it's he that pulls the string. In a way, we're like puppets. Now, this is very difficult for the West to accept. They consider surrender a sign of weakness. And especially, I've got to say, I always feel that men's egos are slightly more puffed up, but women have to be, are by nature more humble. The says that as well. Well, I know, we're more compassionate. Let's face it, women yes. have babies. And more nurturing and sacrificing, yeah. yes. You have to, otherwise he wouldn't, otherwise the men would be having babies and wouldn't they complain about the pain? <laughs> Not that I know that, because I never had children. I consider my CDs my children, because it takes about nine months between conception of thought to write the songs and actually finishing and mixing and everything and doing the album. So I call them my babies. And they then don't you... talk back when they're in their teens. <laughs> and you can switch them off when you want, <laughs> want to. to. That's yes. a definite plus. I've lost so the track. So you were telling me about this. You've been, you were, you've been to places most people have not even heard of. Yes. Yeah. Well, that came about, I suppose, 10, 12 years ago. They, I started getting calls because I have, I think, sung either at some part around the birthday time, every birthday except for three when I've been ill, actually, for the last, so that makes it the last 15 years. And so people were saying, oh, well, can you come and sing here or there? And if I'm not with my blues band and I'm actually free, I've said, yeah, okay, why not? And So you've flown to places, countries people haven't heard of. Well, have you heard of Dagestan? It, though it's not technically, it's a country, it's next, it's, it's a, in part of Russia, Russia. but it's yeah. uh, on the Caspian Sea next to Azerbaijan. So Azerbaijan, Uzbekistan, um, Uzbekistan Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Siberia, Lithuania, Litvia, um, no, Latvia. Latvia. Estonia, Romania, Hungary, Poland, as well as the normal things like Australia and America. But I love these countries that are Muslim. Okay, they're Russian-speaking, but the, the Muslim countries I adore. And, and Swami once said to me in the middle, he was talking to somebody else, and he suddenly looked at me, he said, the Sufis are very good. And then he carried on talking. And this got me thinking, because I've always liked the aspect of Sufi thought. You know, it's not a religion, it's not organized. Its religion is the religion of love, and there's no intermediary like a priest like we have in England, which is ridiculous. You need somebody to speak to God? God no yeah. way. Let me go direct to the big boss, which, of course, as we know, is inside. But the Sufis function like that, and I, I, I was quite cheered that he should say this, and I'd had quite a few interviews when I was surrounded by Muslims, the Iranians when I'd been in there, mm-hmm. which were quite rare in the old days. There were not so many of them. I'm happy to see there are a lot more now. So when I have a feeling that's why he's always made sure that I've enjoyed these bhajans like Allahu Akbar and Salam Alaikum, Mm. which they never seem to sing in at all here, although it's a very old bhajan. I'm told it's over 50 years old. Nobody sings it. And it always irks me about Allahu Akbar. I sang it last year. Yes, you did, very beautifully. 
But I also said, I may say it again and again, because I cannot understand why the boys, Swami's boys, never sing these lines that were originally written with the song. This la, 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 la. And it's the punchline. It's the best line of the song. And they don't do it. This bothers me. But so when I was going to... You know what? That might be the reason. After they hear you sing it so well and soulfully, they don't want to... No, 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 that's flannel, flannel, (laughs) Karuna. That's not true at all. Because when I used to come here in the early days, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I loved the song because they sang it. And then I recorded a version of it on an earlier Bhajan CD called Universal Bhajans. And I went into Swami and I said, listen, I'm about to do this album. Can I, should I put these lines in? Because they, you know, they were part of the song as I originally learned it. And he said, yes, you do it. So I I put it in and I've done another version on the Eternally Yours album. But still, I campaigned for these lines. So I said, even on stage, Swami has allowed me to do it. And this is how the writer originally wrote it and how it's meant to be. One day, the boys will do it. I hope, (laughs) if anyone's listening. And when you go to these countries which are former Muslim, uh, former republics of the USSR and are Islamic, most of the population is, how do you find uh, people react to your music and to the message that you take to them? They adore it. They absolutely adore it. I think they're quite happy that anyone is mad enough to go to these places. (laughs) I mean, because some of them are villages in the middle of nowhere. I've slept practically on floors and it's not just me alone it's with the head of the two heads of the I think it's called Zone 8, Eight the, the Russian, countries. yeah, and one of them is a Danish guy, Dean Piccolel, and one of them is Valeri, the Russian, so I'm not sort of thrust into the world on my own, I've got a little bit of a team around me, but they react amazingly and because I'm not shy, you know, or timid or nervous in front of a camera or a, a microphone, because it's what I've been doing. For me, it's like breathing. I make people feel at ease when I talk to them or sing to them. And I think people can react to this. You know, when I sing in front of Swami, I, I talk as if I'm talking, I mean, I talk to the audience as if I'm talking how I'm talking to you now, mm. because that is communication and it's from the heart. So. They react to this, and I have a translator on stage. I tell them the words of the songs that I'm singing. So if it's a budget, obviously they usually know them better than I do. They're so starved of religion, having been depressed and compressed, whatever the word, depressed down. Depressed with communism all um, these years. All these years, godlessness, that they are flourishing, they are blooming like flowers, and absolutely ready to imbibe in this. And so amazing their savor that they do to homeless people, to animals. Swami has said the Russian-speaking people have an amazing heart and very similar to an Indian heart as well. And they react amazingly. So, of course, at the moment I start off with Allah, Ho Akbar, they're beaming away and little old kind of Muslim men with orange beards and a stick and a hat on going, bopping up and down, which is unheard of. And sometimes they... Sometimes they get up and dance to the budgeons, which, of course, I'm quite pleased about. Uh, I always say this. It used to make me miserable that the first budgeons I ever learnt off these Bhajanavali collapsing cassettes. I go back to England, and there's one budgeon book there, and it's a lot of mistakes. I know full well that Hare, Haran, Hari means completely different things because nobody taught me in the early days. But there was a list of rules at the beginning of the book saying things to do and not to do when you're singing bhajans. And one of them is that you must sit stock still. 
this used to bother me because once the music's going, I can't sit still. And Swami once said, yeah, Dana, she dances like this and he did me better than I do me. You know what a sense of humour he is. <laughs> so he knows I'm not going to sit still. And, sit still, yes. And I know probably it wasn't very popular at the beginning. But, but people are getting used to it and enjoying it and maybe they... Ease they, off a little and take They it. should, yeah. because, you know, <laughs> bhajans in the early days were, were for people who knew about Swami. But my job is to take his message to people who don't know about Swami. And not everyone can get the hang of bhajans, so I've made them slightly groovier so that your man in the street... A lot of Indians in America, this is about 15 years ago, they came up to me and said, we love your Third Man albums because our kids who don't like budgeons are now listening to it because there's, you know, there's a beat. But I was worried in the early days because I did a version of Prasanna Ho with a disco beat and I performed it in the Purna Chandra Hall and I was thinking, you know, is Swami going to be furious that I've taken some holy music and put this beat? And not only was he not furious, at the back of the Purnachandra, some people were up and were dancing in the Purnachandra Hall. I thought that was pretty amazing. So now, in the Russian-speaking countries, I tell them this story that people have danced to bhajans. And they all go, yes, and they're all up and dancing. So I do it usually as the last number, and they're all going, ha-prasanaha. And they're all raving around like this, because music has to be joyous. And it has to uplift the soul. And it's a celebration. Yes, absolutely. Um, when you go to these countries, how do you introduce Baba to those people? What do you tell them? Have you had any experiences telling people or showing his picture? How do you go about it? Well, I do two different types of concerts. Mm-hmm. I will do concerts or talks at, a, at Sai Centre, so I don't have to introduce him. Yeah. He's already known. No. But somewhere like Uzbekistan in Tashkent, it's not technically allowed. And Singapore, too, I was told, you know, you, you can do an, in, uh, uh, an insider's concert, so that's no problem. An outsider's one, don't mention him. So I just mention his message of love, and I will. his message for me is anyway more important. Um, he himself keeps saying, you know, so it's very important, it's very easy for me to talk about his message to these people. Um, Has anyone heard of him before? Um, Sometimes they have. Uh, one example was in Samarkand. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd gone there with the team of people, and that's in Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan. Okay. And that's, this was where, I think it was Steen Pikalel pulled out a photograph and showed it to a little old Muslim woman, and she said, he's God, we've been waiting for him, and tears poured down her cheek. And then a, an 11-year-old boy came up and he said, but I was playing football with him in the street yesterday. Hmm. So this is Samarkand, which was always my dream to go to, and I'd love to do a concert there. But then we were in Dagestan, um, again with the same merry troupe, and we'd heard that there was a, a Sufi guy living in a, in a far-off village, basically with a few huts around him. And so we'd take up lots of fruit and things as gifts, drinks, non-alcoholic, obviously. And he's in the middle of nowhere with no television or anything. We we sit and wait for him because he's got to come back from the mosque because it's Ramadan. We're waiting for sunset. And again, Steen or Valeri says, you know, have you heard of Sai Baba? And he goes, have I heard of him? He produces a picture himself from his pocket. He's got Sai Baba key ring. And he said, but he's been here. And he brings us into into his kind of prayer room, if you could call it, and there's a big picture of Shirdi Sai Baba and Satya Sai Baba on the wall, which for a Muslim who won't have a form is a pretty 
big deal. So I'm seeing this more and more that the Muslims... And Swami has been there physically for Yeah, physically, him. yes, he's seen him. I mean, sadly, I can't say that I've seen and him in my him place. And him gifts with a yes, picture and yes. a keychain. <laughs> so, I mean, it, these things are inexplicable for me, but they're is as inexplicable as, you know, I have seen the Vibhuti pouring off pictures in various parts of the world or the Amrit dropping off things. I know these things aren't in the big picture that important, but if you're a little... I don't know, you're living in a village somewhere in the middle of nowhere, and suddenly, I've seen this in a man in Dagestan, mm -hmm. there was Vibhuti appears on his photograph. I mean, the joy that it gives is incredible. You know, this, this omniscience thing is incredible. And I actually am more moved by devotees who have never seen Swami in the flesh than those that come here and see him. And those that see him in the flesh can easily be misled and think that he is this in the flesh. Yes. It's a very easy mistake to fall into. And everyone's, you know, wanting to get up the front and because they think he's going to, you know, is he going to see me, look at me? It's, it's so easy to fall into that trap. Um, but over there, they don't have this possibility, so they're seeing with inner vision. And when I see how they serve each other, I was last year, no, July this year, in Russia, with Valeri in the St. Petersburg, and they're doing seva, they're doing up the houses of little old ladies of 80. One had only one leg, they've got no windows, the broken, holes in the ground or the floor. Who's going to cut their wood at winter time? And it'll be minus 30 degrees in winter time. These people, their selfless service is amazing, giving out food packets. I'm humbled to the size of an atom when I see what these Russians do. And I'm so grateful that I've been given the chance to do this and to bring some joy. And so I always give it a concert wherever I go. Dear listeners, you just heard part one of a conversation with Ms. Dana Gillespie. Please be sure to join us for part two of this conversation with Ms. Dana Gillespie where she shares even more fascinating Psy experiences. This conversation came to you as part of our series Trist with Divinity. We look forward to your feedback. Our email ID is listener at radiosai.org. Thank you and Sai Ram from Prashantinilayam.
Shiva Shakti Om.